0: Good morning to you Christ Central. It's an honor to worship together with you. It's an honor to be one of the pastors here. Before we get into God's Word, and I share something as a one-week break from the Gospel of John, I do want to invite us together to spend a moment of reflection and, and prayer for the nightmare that occurred in Las Vegas just this week. I'm going to read a little story. It's very short, some of the stories of heroes and redemption even coming out of such a nightmare. Uh, during that Las Vegas gunfire, Mike McGarry, a 53-year-old financial advisor from Philadelphia, said that he quickly tried to shield his children. In other words, he just jumped and laid on top of them. Quote, it was crazy, I laid on top of my kids, they're 20, I'm 53, I've lived a good life, McGarry told Reuters. He said he had shoe prints on the back of his shirt from people who ran over him to get away. Just one of the amazing acts of of self-sacrifice, redemption, even in the midst of that nightmare. I wanna ask you, whatever way you pray in silence or aloud. I want us to pray that God would show his comfort to those who are so shocked, so in the midst of grief, in the aftermath of this nightmare that has occurred. Pray and thank God for the first responders, for all those who are seeking the community to be made well. And most of all, pray that the Spirit of God would point those who are in desperate need somehow to the hope that is found only in Jesus. So would you join together with me just a couple moments of prayer? Let's pray. Father God, we worship you this day because who else can we turn to? And we pray for Las Vegas. We pray for an outpouring of your supernatural comfort, that people would find peace, that there would be hope through a message and through a man and by his spirit who came into the ruins, who came into a nightmare, suffered and died with us, died for us, and got back up on the other side. Oh Lord, we pray that Las Vegas would turn to you and find healing and hope every step of the way. And God, now, as we want to turn to you and hear from you, we pray, Holy Spirit, use this time, open up our hearts, bring your word with clarity and with gospel force and love. For we pray this together in Jesus' name, amen, amen. At this time, like I said, we're taking one week break from the Gospel of John. I've entitled it, One More for the Gospel, under new management. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of First Timothy, It'll also be projected overhead. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Let me read this for us. This is Apostle Paul to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's word so far. Our vision here at Christ Central is one more for the gospel. One more for the gospel. That means that each of us would bring one more friend to Christ and that each of us would raise one more disciple and servant for Christ. This vision, one more for the gospel, I believe, has been given to us from God. And I pray that it would light a fire in all of our hearts together. It is a vision for our not yet believing friend. And it's a vision for an already believing friend. That you would bring one more to Christ and that you would raise one more servant for Christ. Now, because our congregational meeting, which we had two weeks ago, is so well attended every year... That is pure sarcasm. I am happy to update you on what we shared there on a status report of how we're doing with One More for the Gospel. And like any healthy organism, which the Christ Central Church is, we have consistently grown in numbers and needs. In fact, 10 years straight since I've been here, but we get to celebrate on October 27th on Friday at Artesia Campus, six years how we became a church, called Christ Central with our own vision. We get to worship God, we ought to thank God, we're gonna celebrate, yes, with one of our favorite pastors and speakers, Pastor Owen, do not miss out. And we'll have something a little special for us here as well at Placentia on that Sunday. But in this past year alone, really all by the sheer grace of God, we've seen brothers and sisters get baptized, confirmed, which is the same as baptism. It's the first profession of Christian faith publicly as adults. Many get inducted as members. We've recently added 33 new servants to the deacon board, 33. Praise God for them. We're seeking and training to ordain new deacons by the end of this year in December, new officers and leaders for this ginormous deacon board. We are planning and preparing to ordain elders, elders, they are the the leaders of a church next year. But of course, as you all well know here, especially at Christ Central Placentia, our greatest, our largest project to fulfill one more has been the launch of Christ Central Placentia, exactly last October, October 2016, right around Halloween time. And what we have realized, which is no longer a surprise, is that we used to be one church on one campus. We used to be one church on one campus, but now we're one church on two campuses. And we have come to a happy realization that both campuses need all the more strategic and pastoral leadership and care and attention in ministries. And the reason, again, we launched from one church on one campus to one church on two campuses is so that each of us can freely invite one more friend to Christ, and we could raise one more servant for Christ at each location. I'm also very happy to say that our staff now, which has been growing with marvelous new additions and new hires to come, I can honestly say it's probably the best shape that it's ever been, all by the provision of God, and each staff member, I tell you, is stretching, realigning, growing, including myself, although I'm not going anywhere. My role remains the same, but all the more focused. And I want you to notice a pattern just on this brief update so far. And How are we doing with One More for the Gospel? I want you to notice this pattern. The Gospel of Jesus does not produce people who want more for themselves. The real Gospel of Jesus always produces people who want to give themselves away more. And along with growth in most every area I could think of here at Christ Central, there's one area, I'm afraid to tell you, that has not grown. And it actually might be the first year ever that we have not met or exceeded our projected giving. Along with growth in almost every area of Christ Central, this very well might be the first year we have not grown in financial giving. That's a first. And I want to tell you, this is a really good first. It doesn't make me fret. It doesn't keep me overly worried at night. No, it really does not. Because in every church, to have the first experience where financial giving might be lagging is a tremendous opportunity to stretch and strengthen faith. It is a great turning point to deepen and unleash greater giving. And, most of all, it can shape us how to live out the gospel, the real gospel, not just with our mouths, but with our money. This is why I've chosen this passage, one more for the gospel, under new money management, 1 Timothy chapter 6. There's three meditations here from Apostle Paul. Three meditations, real quick. Notice how Apostle Paul, as he talks about money issues he says, we are all managers. Biblically, it's called a steward. A steward is a person who manages someone else's money or property. We are all managers. Why? Because everything is a loan. Everything is a gift. There's no owners here. There really is no board of trustees here. There's no CEOs in the kingdom of God all of it has been handed down as a gift this is why Apostle Paul said when we came into the world we brought nothing and when we go out of the world we take literally nothing beyond the grave I happened to run into a friend of a pastor who was moving up to Seattle and I was asking why he moving up to Seattle I was, oh, I'm a money investing manager Very sheepish and humble about it. Oh, that's great. I mean, you've been in LA all your life. Why are you going to Seattle? It's rainy, it's cold, it's dreary up there. So I got a new job and said, oh, you're an investing money manager. For who, for who? And he said, Jeff Bezos. I said, Jeff Bezos of Amazon? Yeah, that Jeff Bezos. And I just thought to myself, what an incredible job investing and managing hundreds and hundreds and millions of dollars. But do you know Apostle Paul right here teaches us that you are God's? Did you know that you're the personal money manager for God? That out of his infinite riches of grace where he has handed out everything by a gift you and I are called not to act like owners for we are not but to act like stewards, managers. So do you know how to make more money with the money you have? Do you know how to save it well? Do you know how to spend it wisely? Do you know how to budget? Do you know how to plan? Do you know how to invest it? There's a story of Joseph in Genesis where he was the right-hand man to the Pharaoh, and in the seven fat years, they called it, the seven years of overabundance, the economy was just booming. He stored away a lot of food because by a gift of prophecy, he knew that seven years of famine, the lean years would come. And so, he stored away a lot of food when the economy was booming, and then when the economy tanked, they had no more food. People were starving because of Joseph's money management, food management, the people could eat and live. And I tell you, I think what Joseph did there was just as spiritual as anything else he ever did. Yeah, Potiphar's wife came after him because he was a young, handsome-looking boy. She wanted to do evil with him, and he turned her away. Yes, you call that, oh, that's spiritual self-control. That's what a godly man looks like. No, I tell you, Joseph, being a great manager with the wealth and the resources of Egypt was just as spiritual. It's a gift of God to his people that we become good managers. Here's a second meditation. Make money, make money, yes, make it, please. Make money with the mission. Make money for a mission. Manage money for mercy, justice, generosity. First Timothy, the entire book, it's short. You can read it in about 10 minutes. It's filled with money matters. And in another part, Apostle Paul says, you should work hard, work hard. Everyone should work hard. There's no excuse you should work hard so that you can provide for your family, your immediate family. If there's anyone in your immediate family that is going without care, health, provisions, you as a relative ought to work hard to provide for them. And then Apostle Paul goes on to say, you should provide for those who are the most most unfortunate, the most marginalized, the widows in your society. What is Apostle Paul teaching? Everyone ought to work hard, not just so that they could put food in their mouths, so that food could be given to those who are in need. And my question for us this morning, is this really your mission with money? Is increasing mercy, increasing generosity, increasing the work and the spread of the gospel of Jesus, really your ultimate mission with money? Or is just making money your mission? A lot of people say, I'm in my 20s right now, or I just got my first job, and so, you know, Harold, I'm gonna get around to this biblical teaching on giving money later on when I got my basis covered. You know, I get a promotion, I get a higher income, I'm a little bit more secure. And I'll tell you, those with that attitude, I've seen them live the rest of their lives never giving. It never comes. Other people object, well, I know you churches and sometimes even Red Cross or Salvation Army and World Vision and these charities and these causes, they abuse it, they mishandle it, they don't distribute it rightly. And I tell you, my friend, please do your research. Organizations ought to be transparent. Organizations ought to manage money well. Please do your research. Be proactive. Don't be reactive and guilt-ridden to just give. That is not Christian giving at all. But I do want to suggest a thought to you that if we were to ask Jesus himself, who is the Lord of his church and the Lord of every Christian person, if you were to ask Jesus himself, Jesus, would you have given your life and your blood and given your wealth and given up every comfort still for a person like me when you surely knew I would misuse and abuse and take advantage of so much of your grace? You know, thank God Jesus does not do that. And thank God, people of Christ, Christian people, are called not only to be managers, manage it well, but to manage it for increasing generosity, sacrifice, mercy, and gospel works. This is all I'm saying. Please don't use the excuses that other people misuse it as an excuse for you to never give. The first meditation, Apostle Paul says, no owners here. We take nothing after the grave anyways. We're all managers. Second, what's your mission with money? Make money for a mission. Here's the third, here's the third. Money brings misery to those who bank on it. Money always brings misery to the people who live for it. Jesus never once suggested, if money fails you. Jesus always preached and taught, assuming it's just a matter of when money fails you. Jesus never suggested, if money fails, it's only a matter of when. In 1928, some of the planet's most wealthy people met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Those in attendance were the president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the presidential cabinet, the greatest bear on Wall Street, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, and head of the world's greatest monopoly. 25 years later, these were their fates. Charles Schwab, who had been president of the largest steel company, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died broke. Arthur Cutton went from being the greatest wheat speculator to dying broke. Richard Whitney, former president of the New York Stock Exchange, served a term in prison. Albert Fall, who had served as a member on the president's cabinet, was granted a pardon that enabled him to die at home. Jesse Livermore, who had been Wall Street's greatest bear, committed suicide. Leon Frazier, who had served as a president of the Bank of International Settlements, committed suicide. Ivan Kruger, who had been head of the world's greatest monopoly, committed suicide. Is it any different today? Money is a wonderful, wonderful means, an awful master. Money is a gift, it's a loan, it's a wonderful means. But it's a brutal master. Money is one of the most pervasive masters in our day and age. And the difficult part of the mastery of money is that its MO is it deceives and blinds you that you're mastered. Money is one of the most pervasive, unrelenting masters in our day and age. And it's hard to admit that you've even been mastered by it. Because money itself can blind you. This is why Jesus taught directly on money 25% of the time. Would you come to our church if I taught on money once a month? Would you go to any church or any small group that got into your finances once a month? Apostle Paul talks about it directly and clearly. And the reason why Jesus and Paul talked about it continually and clearly with conviction is because they both know money can kill. Here's what Apostle Paul describes it as. The love of money leads many to ruin and destruction. That's what we read in chapter 6. A love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and it has led many to ruin and destruction. My friends, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Do you think that the love of money only applies to Gordon Gecko, Wall Street types? The over the top, greedy, lustful, wasteful, indulgent, splurging Wall Street types? which is originally played by Charlie Sheen, and then they made an awful remake with Shia LaBeouf. Don't even watch that second one. (laughs) Do you think the love of money only happens to people after you have lots of it? The 1%? I think the way Jesus taught it, and the way Apostle Paul taught it, is the love of money comes not dependent on whether you have lots of it or none of it, There's an over-anxiety about it. There's an obsession about it. There's an overdrive about it. There's an over-fury about it. There's an over-stress about it. There's just an over-the-top thing about it. You see, the love of money makes people give up everything for it. Health won't matter. Marriages won't matter. Certainly, spiritual maturity won't matter. And the love of money, which leads many to ruin and destruction, is a pervasive but incredibly deceptive master. As your pastor, my opinion of what I have seen and witnessed firsthand is if sexual immorality is the usual suspect for destroying someone's Christian faith in their 20s, the love of money does it much better later. If immorality is the usual suspect for why people don't go to church after college, the love of money is the usual suspect of why people in middle age with families living in the suburbs have no more real authentic love for Christ. So how much money you make is not the issue. How we manage it is the issue. What is your mission with money? Prosperity theology uses God to get to your real God of money. Prosperity theology talks and sounds and teaches this. God, if I give you a little here, I give you a little there. If I fast, if I sacrifice, I give you a little up front, you better give me a lot back. It's using God to get to your real God of money and blessings. The overreaction is poverty theology, poverty theology. Maybe in the immigrant church, this was somewhat prevalent. It condemns money in and of itself. Oh, we shouldn't be greedy, don't covet, always be content. So we should never learn how to make money or more money or invest money or balance budgets or spend it and save it. And if as soon as you get money, you should just get rid of it as soon as possible because it's dirty, it's evil. Now this may sound pious, may sound holy, but it's ancient heresy which teach, teaches you that somehow the less you have, the more poor you are, the closer to God you are. But nobody is closer to God because you have lots of money. Nobody is closer to God because you have no money. The only people who ever get close to God is because they put their trust in a substitute savior, Jesus, who himself bled and died and gave up his life for the rich and the poor. The only people who get close to God is not your material wealth or your good performance. It's only by the grace found in Jesus Christ. But back to the question. If created and called and gifted by God, our mission is to manage God's wealth and all of his resources, how does God himself instruct us to manage his money? Well, the first and foremost, most basic biblical command to express how God gave us everything is a word called tithing. Tithing means 10%. Tithing is a biblical way and a biblical command to express God gave us everything. Let me put it this way. If someone gave you $100,000, for some of you that's too little. If someone gave you a million dollars, someone gave you a million dollars and say, here, million dollars for free, it's all yours. I just want 100,000 back. For you to express that, I was the giver that you're grateful and you're gonna manage the rest 90% in the way that I would want. Who here would resist? Who would complain? Who would be outraged? Oh, gave me a million dollars, but he wants 100,000 back. Tithing, tithing? is a biblical expression, it's the beginning of gratitude. Tithing is a command that the first 10% automatically belongs to the Lord. This is listed in Numbers chapter 18, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, Deuteronomy chapter 26. In Malachi chapter three, the prophet dares to say, if you don't give 10% in tithe, you're actually robbing God. You're stealing from God. I'm just going to actually read one verse, if you have your Bibles, it's the all-time devotional favorite. It's a book called Leviticus, chapter 27, verse 30, and here it reads, every tithe, 10% of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. There's no if, ands, or buts about this. It's just automatically, wholly set apart. You can't touch that. You can't touch that. You shouldn't touch that, ever. You're robbing from God. It all belongs of the land of the seed, any fruit, any productivity, any income. In 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verse 10, Paul reminds all Christian people, everything we have gotten is for free. And then the question he asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, one of my favorite verses, he asked it, I'll paraphrase, what do you have that is not a gift? So giving 10% is a practical, visible expression of gratitude for all that God has given. And it's like this, my friends. If you're not used to it, oh, I know how foreign and crazy this sounds. But it's like training wheels when you're learning to ride a bike. It's the beginning discipline of how to enjoy learning, riding a bike. And tithing is the automatic first that we give to God and as you get used to that, you'll begin to actually learn how to ride a bike. Now we've actually, I've gone so crazy technological today, thought I'd really help you out. We're gonna have a slide. Can you believe a slide during the sermon? Visual, please. And I do this on behalf of our elder Brian who leads our wonderful finance ministry. Deacon James Pay is also gonna come and lead our finance ministry, which is just as spiritual as any other ministry. Please don't look down at finance people who are crunching numbers and feel better and look at them. I'm out evangelizing to lost people. You're here crunching numbers. I must be better. Please don't do that. I do that sometimes, but that's wrong of me. But anyways, (laughs) easy tithe, easy tithe. It's easy. It's called easy, do you know why it's easy? Automatic, regular, it'll keep you disciplined, and our church would request that if you do this, it actually lessens the work on both ends. You'll never have to check again, and on our end, there's less paperwork, less accounting, it'll be crystal clear, it's all done by computer, computers can't make mistakes the last time I checked. And I'll tell you my friends not only here at Christ Central but all my pastor friends and all the churches whom we work together with to labor for the gospel if this church or most any church had all of her members I'm talking about just members now had all of her members tithe 10% we'd never ever have a budget shortfall We'd never be short for any missions or any ministries or staffing or for the continual launch of a new church. Easy tithe, please do it today. Do it today as soon as you get out. You, could, you know, this is the one time I'll tell you, you can take out your phones, go ahead and do it now. I won't be distracted. There are some folks who will say, oh, pastor, I've heard sermons like this before. And Pastor, the problem is you're talking to someone, you know, I, I read the Bible too. I've read the Bible, and you you gave us a lot of Old Testament texts. I'm a New Testament kind of guy. I'm a New Testament Christian. And I will tell you, Pastor, that in the New Testament, they really don't talk about tithing that much. And I'll be like, you're right. You're smart. You are absolutely correct. And the Bible may not talk about tithing as much, but do you know what the Bible would ask for in the New Testament? It doesn't talk about tithing because it asks for more. It's like when my girls were three and five, please tell daddy I love you and kiss me every day. I had to tell them to do this, and they kept doing it. Now they just don't do it at all. But my goal was to raise them up, to take them beyond the basic command so that there would be a genuine expression of love and gratitude. God is doing the same thing in the New Testament. It's all over the place. In Luke chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus told a rich young ruler to go and sell everything. Literally. What was Jesus pointing out? The love of money kept this man from loving and following Jesus. Period. My friend, again, stay with me. The love of money over anxiety and obsession, that's your life goal. This will hinder and keep you from loving and following Jesus. Period. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus asked for disciples, those who renounce all that they have. Do you know what he asked for there? It's not 10%. It's not 10%. He asked for 100%. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, quote, there was not a needy person among them, the Christians, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' free feet. You see, my friends, New Testament kind of Christians no longer even ask the question, should I tithe? Do I have to tithe? Must I tithe? Pastor, gross or net income, which one? New Testament Christians are so changed by Jesus throughout history, they don't ask, should I tithe? Do I have to give? They ask a different question. How much do I dare keep for myself? Do I even have to have 90% to live on? And what more can I give? One more for the gospel, one more for the gospel. A not yet believing friend. Bring them to Christ raise one more already believing friend, a servant and disciple for Christ. We launched two locations so we could double that. And for that vision to be more than a pipe dream, it requires a whole new and improved money management. I'm going to close with applications by way of questions. Just two things. Applications by way of questions. The first set of questions is this. When, when? When is it going to be enough? When is enough enough? How much is enough? Who sets that standard for you? What sets that standard for you? Your culture? Orange County? Your spouse? How much is enough? Have you ever considered or settled on that question? You and I can lose all perspective and just lose our minds, and this is why the love of money leads to ruin and destruction, because it's never enough. Thankfully, in our household, the Kim clan, my wife, Sunny, is like Jesus. At least she is the direct money-managing representative of Jesus. Thank God, she gives me an allowance. Allowance. So I can eat and, no. (laughs) I'm in the lap of luxury. That's a bad joke. I'm not even close to ever starving. But she gives me a lot. Do you know why she gives me an allowance? Me. The one who makes more than her. Because she knows that I would spend it all and I wouldn't save it. I'm not a good manager. Thank God for Sonny. And so on our dual income, we tithe. We've always been tithing. And we've never lacked, ever. And for every year that we've been married, Because Sonny manages the money and we do get to save. Because if I did it, we wouldn't save anything. At year end, whatever we have saved, we take for 15 years marriage, that's 15%. 15% out of all of our savings, we gladly, we feel the spirit of God when we're able to give that for anyone in need, for missions, so on and so forth. In our household, that is our basic Stewardship. We wish and long to do more. But have you ever asked and answered the question, when is enough enough? Jesus said, you can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. You can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. Have you settled this with your spouse, really? Are you the one or your spouse constantly pressuring, expecting, saying, living in such a way that tells the other person, no, please lose your soul. We wanna gain the world. Do we have a culture, a small group even voices where it's basically, oh, otherwise, just try to have the best of both worlds. If you try to have the best of both worlds, you're always gonna end up with both the worst of both worlds. You know, for every gal that says, you know, pastor, I really want a guy like Jesus. Our church is filled with guys who are not like Jesus. Where are all the guys who are like Jesus? I wanna date one, I wanna marry one. See, you, you do know that Jesus like, was dirt poor. And he never had a bank account, he never owned a home. Oh, those are ancient times, Harold. They didn't have banks back then. No, he was homeless. So if you want to date Jesus, just hang out with him oh, just for three years and just go. For every gal who says, oh, I want a guy like Jesus. And then for every guy who really wants to be like Jesus, do you know that how much you make and how easily you make it or where you make it should be the last thing you want to be known for? How much is enough? When is enough? So many assume when the Bible talk about rich people, oh, Gordon Gekko, Donald Trump, billionaires, you always think it's talking about someone else. But if you look biblically, if you look historically, if you look globally, you and I are unimaginably rich. And yet some of us still overwork, overstress, overborrow, overobsess, the love of money. But chapter 6, verse 6, Apostle Paul told us, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's a second question and we close. What do you want most with money? What are you looking for most when you want to get money? There are deeper false things called idols on the surface, it looks like you may worship money, but actually you want status. Status. I have to, we have to live in that neighborhood. We have to drive this kind of car. We have to vacation here. Our kids have to have this kind of program. Status. There's nothing wrong. It is not sinful to enjoy and thank God for nice, even luxurious things, but it is very sinful to find your status there. Underneath the surface, you want money, money, money. It might be status. Other people, it's because you want comfort. Absolute comfort. Everything easy, everything convenient. You never want to have to break a sweat, never want to have to struggle too much. Other people, it's safety and security. This is a big one. A lot of people need more money all the time because you need to save more, save more, put away more, because you never know what's going to happen on that Future day. You're right, it's good. But do you know how many people save and save and save and save and oversave and overwork and overstress and oversave and die? And I'll tell you there's one person, there's one goal who can give you what money itself can never give you. And it's only under the mastery of Jesus Christ, that you and I can live lives the way that it was meant to be lived. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and heavy laden Come to me if you are tired this morning. Come to me if you feel like this message is talking directly to you. Come to me if you're losing sleep. Come to me if you've been so tired, you're beaten down. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus offers it for free. And then what does he tell you to do? He says, take my yoke. A yoke. That means to take upon and assume total and full mastery of Christ Jesus. Where you say, the love of money will no longer be what I live for. You actually pray today and repetitively, the love of money is not what I'm driving for. The love of money has actually had me do this and do this over the top. But if you say, Jesus, you are my supreme and only master. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Then what does he promise? And then you will find rest for your souls. and then you will find rest for your souls. The second Wall Street movie which was so bad I think is entitled Money Never Sleeps. That's right, and those who love money, you'll never sleep. It's a funny story about a farmer who went to his wife and family one day and reported that their best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white. And the husband said, honey, you know, I have suddenly had a feeling and impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We will bring them up together, and when the time comes, we will sell one and keep the proceeds, and we will sell the other and give the proceed to the Lord's work. His wife asked him which he was going to dedicate to the Lord. He replied, there's no need to bother about that right now. We'll treat them both in the same way. And when the time comes, we will do as I say. And off he went. A few months later, the man entered the kitchen looking very miserable and unhappy this time. And when his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, I have bad news to give you, honey. The Lord's calf is dead. But she said, you had not decided which was to be the Lord's calf. Oh yes, he said. I had always decided it was to be the white calf and it's the white calf that died. The Lord's calf is dead. Of course, we laugh at that story but we hope we're just not laughing right at ourselves in the mirror because isn't it always the Lord's calf that dies? In your lifestyle, when you manage and handle God's money, is it an automatic first that you tithe? It is untouched, it's unquestioned? Or do you only tithe, let alone offer? Give something on top of that when you have leftovers. Is it the Lord's calf that always dies? I'll tell you my friend, I don't want your soul to die with it too. Do you want a greater, richer mission to your life? Do you want a greater, richer vision for your life? I'll tell you it right now. It's the same vision as Christ Central. It is not about how much more can you get. It's found in Jesus, who asked and lived out, what more can I give? What more can I give? And so we didn't read these final three verses in chapter six, verses 17 to 19. Let me close this right here, Apostle Paul's charge